right, my name is William Figueroa and welcome to Reading Beijing, part of the Pursue Media Minutes podcast, where we discuss issues related to China and its interactions with the wider world. Our guest today is Dr. Guy Burton, an adjunct professor at the Brussels School of Governance uh, with a PhD in government from the London School of Economics. He's written on a range of topics related to global governance and international relations, including uh, China and the Middle East, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and conflict management in international relations. I'm very happy to have him with us here today to discuss uh, China's relationship with Palestine. Thank you very much uh, for being here with us, Guy. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So today's topic, as I said, is China's relationship with the Palestinians, which goes back to the early days of the Cold War, uh, back when Beijing was one of the first uh, countries to offer material support, including small arms, to Yasser Arafat and the nascent PLA. Throughout the 1960s and 1970s, China consistently attacked Israel in the press as a Zionist entity and offered its support to the Palestinians as part of a larger strategy to woo Arab states, uh, many of whom still had a relationship with Taiwan uh, and were attempting to convince them to recognize the People's Republic of China instead. Arafat visited China no less than 14 times between 1964 and 2001, a testament to the longevity of this relationship. But beneath the surface is a much more complex set of relations, uh, one which balances support for the Palestinians with China's increasingly friendly relationship over the decades with the state of Israel. Beginning in the 1980s, China had begun to move away from support for revolutionary movements and towards stable relationships with Middle Eastern states, including Israel, uh, which it stopped attacking in the press and quietly reached out to in the 1980s. Official relations established in 1991 and since then, China has consistently supported the international consensus on the Israel-Palestine issue, namely a negotiated settlement uh, that includes a sovereign Palestinian state. <clears throat> this support continues to this day, and I do mean literally to this day. Uh, just a few hours ago, uh, Gong Shuang, China's per uh, deputy permanent representative to the United Nations, called on Israel to, quote, stop encroaching on the lands and resources of the Palestinian people in response to Israel's approval of more settlements in the West Bank uh, and Gaza, despite the fact that such settlements remain illegal under international law. So, Guy, uh, obviously this is a very complex topic, and uh, I'd like to get your take on it just to start us off. Just to put it simply, what's the deal with Sino-Palestinian relations? Well, as you neatly put it in your introduction, I mean, it's one that's seen um, China and, and relations with Palestinians sort of go through ebbs and flows over time. So very strong and very uh, close, you know, back in the 1960s, early 1970s, before sort of becoming somewhat distant in the 1970s and into the 80s, um, and then sort of returning, but, you know, under the auspices of, of Oslo. Um, I mean, also keep in mind that this was also a period in which, you know, China was, you know, its outreach when it first made contact with the Palestinians was primarily in the context of the Cold War. Uh, it was also um, following the Soviets in terms of being the junior communist part partner, which annoyed them somewhat. Um, but it also meant that, you know, they weren't able to have the kind of sort of access that, you know, the Soviets were able to have. Um, you know, the... The Chinese at that time were very much sort of taken up with, uh, you know, uh, engaging the, the you know, various nationalist movements. So in Algeria as well um, and, you know, elsewhere, in, like in the Horn of Africa, the Eritrean Liberation Front, the Defaris in the Gulf. Um, so you had so, so the PLO was very much you know, part of that milieu. Um, 
Of course, uh, the relationship Brimer, was was initially led by you know sort of its relations with you know sort of the Arab world and the Arab leaders like Nasser, who, who claimed to speak on behalf of the Palestinians. But more so after 1967, when you know the Arab, when it became less of an Israeli-Arab conflict and more of a Palestinian one, that's when you start to see this you know close this great this growing closeness between the Chinese and Palestinians, primarily through the PLO. But what's also interesting as well is it's also you alluded to Arafat's visits, and it's really striking because in many ways you know the Chinese maintain their relationship primarily with uh, Arafat and the Fatah leadership. Um, you know despite the fact that there were these other political groups in the Palestinian firmament who are much more Marxist, like the PFLP or the DFLP, you know, the, the Chinese never privileged them. The Chinese really focused on Fatah. And actually, that's something that's continued until today. Um, in fact, actually, one of the things that's made sort of things in, in, in recent years a little bit more complicated is we think about, you know, during, during the Oslo period, the Fatah leadership was also synonymous with the leadership of the PLO, also synonymous with the leadership of the Palestinian Authority. Um, because of that, you had the the Chinese have primarily only ever dealt with those people. Uh, they don't really deal with the others, um, like for example Hamas. Uh, I mean, they occasionally meet with them from time to time, but only very, very fleetingly. And that's also notable when we think about the fact that you know Fatah and Hamas have split the occupied territory since two thousand and seven. You know, what with Hamas being in control of Gaza, the Chinese don't really speak to Hamas. When the Chinese want to talk about Palestinian issues, they go to Fatah, to Fatah and the and the Ramallah leadership. So I think that's quite that's that's an interesting aspect to to to, to flag up that really uh, China's relationships in some ways are rather thin, you know, with the Palestinians. They deal primarily with this particular political leadership. It also means that if you take another group like the boy, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, um, they have very little uh, connection or you know relevance at all. I mean, there's, of course, keep in mind that the BDS, I mean, it is a social social movement. It's very strong in civil society. And its whole ethos is to build transnational links with, um, you know, other like-minded groups. That's really difficult to do in China. And it's also not really had made much headway in China as well. So, you know, the BDS is maybe significant and important in the context of, you know, the West, North America and Europe, very much less so in the case of, in the case of China, where really... You know, Chinese-Palestinian relations are really limited to Ramallah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you 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 bring up a really important issue. One I actually didn't know the extent to which I mean, I knew that they focused on Fatah. I did not know it was actually so exclusive. And I think that really brings us nicely to what's going on today. Um, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, I think it was about a month ago that China once again uh, proposed. Uh, a yet another peace plan uh, for the Israel-Palestine conflict. It's done so fairly regularly. Uh, I think it did so in 2017. It did so in 2020. Uh, to much fanfare, the sort of the so-called four-point uh, peace agreement, or however many points that they <laughs> they assigned to it. Um, so I, you know, it definitely makes me think um, that you know a lot of this this discussion of the role that China can play in the peace process. Of course, it's going to be predicated on what sort of relationships it has with with either side. And it sounds like what you're saying is that their relations with the Palestinians is actually internally is actually quite one sided um, or, or, or rather lopsided, I guess I should say. So I would be curious what you think about, you know, the contemporary proposal and how uh, the way it's approached its relations with the Palestinians in particular uh, affects the degree to which it, these proposals are in any way serious or or could, you know, could amount to anything in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with so you, you, you pointed out there's been these these instances where the Chinese have suggested we can put we would like to see some sort of movement on on it. Keep in mind that they always predicate it on on the um, the principles of of the, of the Oslo Accords, right? Which are sort of Resolution two four two and Resolution three seven eight. You know, the, the idea of land for peace. Um, you know, a Palestinian state. You know, negotiated peace settlement. You know, and that's the framework in which which they they and and it's not just them. The entire international community. The, the, the international consensus, as it. Were. Yes, that's the international consensus. But what is interesting as well is how Oslo, in a way, has, in a way, and this isn't just unique to the Chinese, but Oslo, in a way, had kind of divorced uh, relations between Israel and the Palestinians on one side from the conflict on the other. Um, you see this not just for the Chinese, but I mean, also in, in the case of India, right? Um, where these where these states no longer have to think about their relations with Israel or their relations with the Palestinians through the through the prism of conflict, it becomes instead you know we can have bilateral relations with these two two actors and separate it from the conflict. Um, so that's you know so so that's kind of where China is. And then of course you know there's a number of things that, that are problematic with with it proposing itself proposing itself as a mediator. I mean the first one of course is that. You know, is as a, as a general rule, China doesn't really get involved in the process of um, you know instigating or starting up uh, peace processes. I mean, it is quite happy to get involved. Um, you know, when when processes are already in place, and you know that's been happening in other places in the past. You know, maybe we can explore that. You know, at another time in terms of conflict management, when you think about the Iranian Saudi Saudi agreement recently, or further back, the Iranians when over the nuclear deal. Further back, even than that, you know, Sudan over the Darfur crisis. So what you see is that the Chinese really only get involved when there is already a dialogue, a process already in place. And in a way, that isn't in the that isn't happening with the Israelis and the Palestinians. They haven't been talking to each other in any in any substantive way for pretty much nearly a decade. So you know, the idea that the Chinese are going to come in and start the two talking is uh, fanciful. Now, there's another th- aspect to this as well, which is also problematic, which is, of course, which I've alluded to earlier. It's the, pal- the split between the Palestinians. Um, you know, in a way, yes, the Chinese talk just as the international community talk to the Fatah leadership, as if it is the principal Palestinian, um, you know, leader leadership. The problem, of course, is that, you know, if you're talking about the bulk of the fighting or the, the actual violence that takes place between Israel and the Palestinians today is primarily in Gaza or between Hamas and, Ga- Hamas and Israel in Gaza. So, and really, the, the Ramallah leadership have very little to, to, to say or add to that. Right. So in a way, if there's going to be any kind of Palestinian engagement with Israel, I mean, first of all, you need to deal with the Palestinian split. There needs to be reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas. And that does not look like it's going to be on the cards. And the Chinese don't seem to be um, putting that forward as a, a proposal. In a way, it kind of, uh, I guess, sort of links to the Chinese uh, wariness at, at, at interfer- what they would perceive as interference in, in, in internal affairs. They, they don't see it as their job, their role to get involved in that. But really, you would imagine that that would be the starting point. I mean, you can't have you know dialogue between the Israelis and Palestinians until you've got the Palestinians, you know, Unified again. Absolutely. Uh, you, you brought up um, uh, 
another important issue too, which is that, you know, China gets involved in these processes once they've already begun. It's not historically been the instigator. And I think it's important to point out that that's typically true in general, right? I mean, the Abraham Accords, uh, you know, mm. which happened a few years ago was also, as I, as I always like to point out, not the result of Jared Kushner's skillful Middle Eastern diplomacy. You know, it was a process that was already going on. Um, so, so, you know, when I think about that, I think about, you know, China's, um, you know, its, its proposals in other parts of the world as well. For example, like you can make, I think, the same arguments about its, its attempts to get involved in the Ukraine conflict, right? I mean, does it, are the parties ready to talk to one another? And if they're not, what can China really do? Or what would China even be willing to do? Because as you pointed out, if they're not at that point, it really hasn't ever historically done anything other than urge the two sides to come together and, and to, to, to sort of have a discussion. I, I'm curious what you think theoretically, though. Like, let, let's let's say we're in a we're in a situation in which, um, you know, there is some sort of peace process that's happening. Do you see China potentially playing a role similar to the one that it played in, as you alluded to, Iran and Saudi Arabia? I mean, the difficulty, of course, as well, is that, I mean, when you think about there's there's a, an, another prop, um, elephant in the room, which is whether, you know, who who really wants the Chinese to be involved in, in, in that process? Yes. Right. Right. Because, you know, I mean, if you if you boil it down, it it's very much the Palestinians who would welcome Chinese involvement. But then the Palestinians would welcome opening up the process more generally, because the way that they see it is if we have a more internationalized uh, dialogue, you know, then that's going to put pressure on the Israelis, right? Because we can't do it. We're the weaker party in, in, in this conflict. We can't do it. So we need to sort of somehow, you know, bring the third parties to put leverage on the Israelis. Um, that's by obviously, so that's the, the Palestinian perspective. On the Israeli side, they're quite happy with the way things currently are. I mean, yes, they may say, you know, obviously it is not pleasant, you know, to be caught up in you know, rocket attacks and sort of, you know, suicide bombings, but it is a manageable conflict. So one of the things that's always been struck me over the last couple of decades is people talk about this is unsustainable, but actually it is, well, it's, it's, it's clearly sustained itself. It's been man it's manageable for the Israelis. And so there's no, there's no real pressure on them to, to make a change. And then if you think about the, I mean, obviously the talks, there's not really much of a substantive talk taking place at the moment between Israelis and Palestinians, you know, Obviously, there is security coordination with with the Ramallah leadership. That's about it. Um, the, you know, the and the principal third party you know actor in those talks are the Americans, who are you who who are associated with being more inclined towards the Israeli position. They are not completely even handed in their approach, um, and even they cannot with their with their with their um, association with the American with the Israelis. They cannot get. Uh, the Israelis to to make any kind of meaningful concessions to the Palestinians. So, of course, there's very little incentive on the Israeli side to see any change uh, in that arrangement. And even when the Chinese have gone further than just sort of doing, you know, over you know offers to mediate, um, they've really struggled. I mean, you, you alluded to the four point plan. I mean, there was one that was done in 2013 and then it was kind of re revised in 2017 when uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, the Palestinian president was was in Beijing, but Xi Jinping went even further at that point. He actually said, "You know, I'm willing to host uh, talks," and that actually ended up being a two day, um, you know, 
Peace Symposium in, in Beijing at the end of 2017. Most people have not heard about it. And that's partly because, you know, the same week that that event took place, um, you know, the then Trump administration announced it was moving its embassy from you know, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which creates a major international furore. Um, what's interesting, and that's funnily enough, because that happened, you know, very few people have paid any attention to what was going on in Beijing. And actually, it was really difficult. You know, both sides sent, you know, delegations. I mean, it was a pretty high profile delegation for on the Palestinian side. Uh, in Ahmed Majdalani, who was a, a senior aide and associate of, of, of Abbas, um, the Israelis sent, well, clearly it wasn't government. I mean, they sent, sent a delegation headed by Hilik Bar, who was a deputy speaker of the Knesset. Um, and actually, the Chinese had a really tough time. I mean, they found it difficult to get the two sides to agree to anything more than just sort of general principles. And the, the resolution was non-binding, right? I mean, that's, and which... I think tells you something about, you know, if you are going to go into this conflict, you know, you need to be prepared for failure, right? This, and, and that's, and the thing is, of course, like, you know, the Chinese and others like to kick the Americans for saying, well, you, you've not achieved anything on this conflict. Um, but on the other hand, does anyone else, uh, can anyone else do it? It doesn't seem likely. And in a way, actually, you can kind of think, well, you know, why on earth would the Chinese want to invest more time and effort into this, into this project? Because the risks of failure are pretty high. And if you fail, it does not look good for you if you are trying to project yourself as, 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 a, as, as the coming power, the coming superpower, right? I mean, was, I mean if you want to you know, broaden that out, think about the Russians, you know, in the Middle East in the last couple of years, right? Uh, you know, back when they first intervened in Syria directly in 2015, a lot of people were quite surprised by that. And, you know, the, the, the risks of failure of getting bogged down were quite high. But a few years later, once Assad had basically taken back most of the country, um, you know, the Russian prestige was pretty high. That's taken a knock since, knock since the Ukrainian invasion. You know, suddenly people are looking around going, oh, maybe the Russians aren't as good as they thought they were. Right. And, and you can kind of see the same. You, you would imagine the same thing could probably be applied to a peace process. You know, if the Chinese decide to, you know, to, to mediate and if for some reason both the Palestinians and Israelis were willing to go with the go with them, and the, the Chinese weren't able to achieve um, anything significant, that's going, not going to make, that's not going to look good on them. So I think, you know, there's, I mean, certainly, so I think a lot of these, these, these statements, these, these, uh, you know, offers to mediate are actually more symbolic than anything else. You know, they do a good job of sort of saying, hey, we're here. And hey, look at us, you know, hey, we, you know, it gets people talking about them. You know, it gets people, you know, wondering what would a Chinese process look like, but we don't know what it would look like because it never happens. And um, also it makes the Americans look bad in comparison, which is really the Ameri the Chinese goal. In all Absolutely. Yeah. No, I largely agree with you in terms of the, it's primarily a sort of symbolic process. And you even think about, you know, why would Israel want to participate when, as you say, they're quite comfortable with the status quo as it is, at least in terms of negotiations. And I mean, mm. that's, you know, what better way to, to shake off accusations that you're the intransigent party, you know, by then by going to somewhere that you know isn't going to actually have any leverage over you, that you know is only going to result in some kind of non-binding agreement. Um, and then you get to say, well, we participated in the in the process, though. You know, so it's it's, it's propagandistic or it's, it's sort of symbolic value uh, on both sides. Uh, and that brings me to, I think, my uh, next point. You brought up, um, you know, the America factor. Right. Like how does just the simple fact that Donald Trump did something, you know, that, that not only overshadowed the, that conference and its symbolic value, 
Uh, but even if it had been achieving something, uh, you know, m- moments like that can really could really potentially set things back. Um, so, you know, you, you have to think even if there was some sort of uh, uh, Chinese uh, 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 headway made in that peace process, um, there's no telling what the, the, the you know, the, the sort of larger international uh, uh, situation, you know, changing rapidly or even if the United States were to not be pleased uh, with the possibility of China coming in and changing the situation in ways that was not uh, to the benefit of Israel, for example, uh, you know, that they might they might not like that. So there's there's lots of possibilities. So really, it's the question of outsiders yeah. and other 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 um, factors, really, that, that I'm interested in. And one in particular uh, that we haven't talked about much is Israel itself and China's relationship with Israel. Um, obviously, China has uh, has a relationship with Israel and, and, and quite quite a uh, not as close in recent years, but closer than in, in with some uh, states mm. in the Middle East. So just if you could quickly go over what is that relationship uh, look like and how does it play into China's relationship with the Palestinians? So, I mean, the Chinese relationship with the Israelis, again, I mean, you know, it's, it's important to keep in mind that these are very much sort of at the official level, right? So we don't have, you know, in, in the contrast to, say, you know, the West, you don't really have these kind of sort of connections that go below the level of the state, right? So, you know, the Chinese just engage with whoever's in power and whoever, you know, and, and, base, and capital, right? So, I mean, you know, so if you think about the, you know, sort of the, uh, the sort of the electoral, you know, sort of the the political instability that's happened in Israel over the last few years, you know, sort of, you know, was it four or five elections, you know, in, in the last four years, you know, changes of government. Um, despite all of that, you know, instability, you know, the relationship state remains relatively on an even keel um, because, you know, the Chinese just deal with whoever happens to be in power there. But the, the you know the Chinese relationship is really grow, is a, is a primarily economic one, but that's also reflective, I think, of the wider region as well. Um, you know the trade has grown significant, substantially between Israel and, and, and China over the last twenty years. Um, it is of magnitudes of, of orders much greater than with the Palestinians. So you know if I, I think if you know sort of the last figures sort of indicated around twelve billion in trade between Israel and China in 2020 versus, you know, a few hundred million with, um, you know, the Palestinians. So the Israel matters in a way to the Chinese that the Palestinians don't, right, economically. And, it, and it's not just trade, right, because it's actually, um, you know, China, Israel is a major source, regional source of, of um, inward Chinese investment, you know, particularly into the tech sector. So there was a you we think about china and its relationship with the middle east um you know eurasia is kind of a built around the idea of the belt and road and infrastructure but in the case of israel it goes beyond that it goes into sort of you know te- technological startups you know um high tech and so what you have is that the chinese relationship is is whereas it has these sort of comprehensive strategic partnerships with a bunch of other regional states like iran and saudi arabia you know, in the UAE, when it comes to Israel, it's it's not a strategic partnership. It's it's what they call an innovation partnership, which reflects this. Um, of course, you know this. There was kind of a real boom um, taking place between you know Iran and and sorry Israel and and China on the economic front over the last couple of decades. A lot of this kind of led not so much by government, um, but more sort of you know just economic opportunities as they presented themselves. Um, 
what to that though i would say that in the last few years we talked a little bit about trump there was a little bit of pushback by the americans on the israelis saying you know you need to think about your relationship with the chinese you know you're opening yourselves up to uh, security risks which might affect us as well so think about you know um, you, you want to you want to develop your, te your te telecom telecommunications industry and you want to bring Huawei in. That's potentially a problem, right? You want to you want them to uh, invest in the development of the the Haifa port uh, where the you know the American Sixth Fleet docks. That's a problem. And so what you saw in 2019 was the then Israeli government um, introducing a a law that would sort of review, not retrospectively, but for the future. Uh, a law that would review the foreign ownership of any potential, um, you know, contracts that could be problematic. Um, that was kind of the first stage, and and but it actually, funnily enough, you know, Chinese is so Chinese investment into China, into Israel started to sort of it reached a peak in 2018, and it's been dropping off even before the pandemic. So this 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 was prior to all of this, you know, sort of American pressure on allies. Um, so there is, I wouldn't say it's, it's, a, it's, I don't think, I don't think it's a particularly, it's not a cold relationship. It's a little bit cooler than it was before. Um, but also I think the Chinese understand that, you know, they, they know where the Israelis are coming from. They recognize that ultimately Israel has a particular relationship with the Americans, um, that, which they don't necessarily want to, you know, they're not, they're not going to pull them out of the American orbit. And I don't think they particularly want to, but this is also something about, you know, the bigger picture, right? We, there's, there's, there's a, I think there's a really interesting uh, tension between, you know, you and I and those of us in the, in the scholarly community who, you know, see a real nuance between China and its relationship with the Middle East on one hand and some of the policy, you know, operatives, you know, in, in Washington and other capitals who sort of want to sort of portray the, the region as quite stark, you know, a competition between America and China for the hearts and minds of, you know, regional actors. Um, you know, in many ways, the you know Chinese and, and American interests overlap to a considerable degree in the region, right? They're they're both interested in you know in in re regional order with instability and order because stability and order for the Chinese is good for economic e economic in interests and investments. What you you start bringing in instability and disorder, those you know that then it becomes a risky place to to do what to do business. So you know. While the Chinese saw the Americans putting a little bit of pressure on the Israelis when it came to their relations with the Chinese, the Chinese kind of understood why they were coming from there, and they didn't really sort of push back too much. Yeah, they might sort of rail against it, you know, sort of rhetorically, but they're not going to do anything substantive about this. I, I'm reminded of, you know, famously uh, when when Mao met N uh, Nixon for the first time, you know, he, he they said something, well, you know, don't we're going to continue to call you, you know, capitalist pigs in the press, but don't worry about it because, we, you know, we just have to say that and Nixon allegedly, you know, said in reply, yes. And, you know, we're still going to call you, you know, red commie bastards in the press, too. But, you know, we just have to say that to, to placate the people back home, you know, mm -hmm. and there is there is some truth to that. Yeah. It's worth noting, too, that, you know, is Israel was willing to comply with U.S. directives on this uh, on this issue, but not not necessarily happily. Uh, and in many ways, it's sort of um, you can see you can sort of discern between the, the lines and effort to say, no, no, calm down. Like we really would like to continue to use this Chinese technology. Look, look how closely we're checking it. It's fine. Don't worry so much. Um, I recall as well some resistance, you know, once people retire, you know, they're often a little bit more 
forthcoming. And I can't remember his name, but there was an Israeli intelligence official who retired right around the time when uh, the Haifa port project was uh, put on hold. And he went to the press and he sort of said, you know, that this was the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard from the Americans, you know, saying that they're worried that the Chinese are going to be spying, you know, because they've bought some property in, 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 mm-hmm. in developing Haifa. He said, if, if they want to spy in Israel, they can do what everybody else does and just get a hotel room. I mean, it's not it's not hard to you don't need to buy a port to be able to figure out what's going on on the ground. Uh, so so there is there is some some very, resistance very... to this as well. So and as, as you say, it's I think that ultimately everyone does sort of want to do business. And, and it's really just it continues to be uh, an issue of planners, people in Washington and, and people in Israel and people in China as well, you know, seeing as a kind of zero sum game and and not not seeing the ways in which all of those uh, uh, things that you laid out uh, are, are, are in fact, you know, common uh, 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 goals of, of, of pretty much every country in the region. Um, and I think, you know, this is why I think the long view is so important when we think, think about China and the Middle East, because I think, you know, thinking more broadly, often I think because China is sort of seen as sort of the, the coming thing, you know, the new, sort of the new kid on the block, uh, there's a lot of, particularly from the media, there's a lot of sort of, you know, excitement as to, well, what does this mean? Well, as actual facts, I think you, you take a longer term perspective, you actually see that a lot of these things even themselves out. So, you know, we, we've been, t- so what one of the interesting things about the mo- this recent sort of like ratcheting, I wouldn't call it ratcheting up, but more sort of, you know, the shift in Israeli preoccupation with China, you know, I mean, we'd say the 2010s were quite free and liberal when it came to trade and, 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 con- and contracts being signed with the Chinese. That has started to change since 2019. But this actually echoes something that happened about 20 years ago. I mean, you alluded to in your introduction how the Chinese and the Israelis uh, first uh, came into contact with each other in the 1980s. That was primarily, you know, sort of a it was primarily driven by an arms trade, a clandestine one. Um, And even after they once they established formal relations, it continued in the set. But now in the open, you know, um, Israel was still selling military equipment to the Chinese. And the Americans were quite comfortable with that during the course of the 1990s. But what's interesting is towards the end of the 1990s, the Israelis, um, you know, sold uh, what was called the Falcon radar equipment to the Chinese, um, something that was um, considered to be, uh, how, how should I put this? So it was, you know, for su- suddenly the American for the Americans, this was a threat because this is equipment that could be put into, into, into aircraft um, in the te- in the in the vicinity of Taiwan, which of course is where America has a sort of a military presence, and the Americans pushed back on this and said, you know, Israel, you have you can't sell this to to China. Um, the Chinese had already put down a down payment, so the Chinese, so then, so the Israelis basically just gave the money back and kept it. That actually caused a little bit of a fallout in relations between Israel and China for a year or so. But again, it didn't cause a complete collapse because you know the Chinese understood where the Israelis were coming from. Um, you know, this is not, they couldn't, they weren't going to, uh, you know, completely, you know, confront uh, Israel's relations with the Americans full on, because ultimately, you know, Israel and the US has a particular type of relationship that the, the Chinese recognize. Right. And it's really important for the Chinese to balance those relations on all sides. I think that's a great place for us to end. Guy, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Uh, hopefully we can have you back again soon. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, yeah, great, great to see you as always. Thanks for joining us at the Pursue Media Minutes podcast for our Reading Beijing section. 
And if you're interested in this or other topics on China, Iran, or China in the Middle East, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn or on Twitter at at Media and ask about our various analytical products, including analytical briefs written by yours truly, such as Look East or Look to Each Other, China's Foreign Policy Objectives, and China's Diplomatic Coup. You can also find me on Twitter at at IranChinaGuy. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.